chapter 9, and we're going to read the whole thing. Um, It says, I saw the Lord standing by the altar, and he said, Strike the tops of the pillars so that the thresholds shake. Bring them down on the heads of all the people. Those who are left I will kill with the sword. No one will get away. None will escape. Though they dig down to the depths below, from there my hand will take them. Though they climb up to the heavens above, from there I will bring them down. Though they hide themselves on the tops of Carmel, there I will hunt them down and seize them. Though they hide from my eyes at the bottom of the sea, there I will command the serpent to bite them. Though they are driven into exile by their enemies, there I will command the sword to slay them. I will keep my eye on them for harm and not for good. The Lord, the Lord Almighty, he touches the earth and it melts, and all who live in it mourn. The whole land rises like the Nile, then sinks like the river of Egypt. He builds his lofty place in the heaven and sets its foundations on the earth. He calls for the waters of the sea and pours them out over the face of the land. The Lord is his name. Are not you Israelites the same to me as the Cushites? Did I not bring Israel up from Egypt, the Philistines from Kaftor, and the Arameans from Kerr? Surely the eyes of the sovereign Lord are on the sinful kingdom. I will destroy it from the face of the earth. Yet, I will not totally destroy the descendants of Jacob. For I will give the command and I will shake the people of Israel among the nations as grain is shaken in a sieve and not a pebble will reach the ground. All the sinners among my people will die by the sword. All those who say disaster will not overtake or meet us. In that day, I will restore David's fallen shelter. I will repair its broken walls and restore its ruins. I will rebuild it as it used to be, so that they may possess the remnant of Edom and all the nations that bear my name, declares the Lord, who will do these things. The days are coming, declares the Lord, when the reaper will be overtaken by the plowman and the planter by the one treading grapes. New wine will drip from the mountains and flow from all the hills. And I will bring my people back from exile. They will rebuild the ruined cities and live in them. They will plant the vineyards and drink their wine. They will make gardens and eat their fruit. I will plant Israel in their own land, never again to be uprooted from the land that I have given them, says the Lord your God. This is the word of the Lord. You can be seated. This week, I was thinking about how the rise of the internet has given us this ability to form communities as we please, to form communities with hyper-specific common interests. So, for instance, if you like 1960s muscle cars, you don't just have to know the people that live around you, but you can be connected to an entire world of people who like 1960s muscle cars, and you can talk with them. Or if you like to collect Pokemon cards, you can find 
websites about it. You can find YouTube channels about it. You can learn about where conventions are. And you can meet up with people who share these very specific common interests that we have. And it's not just our hobbies. We, we can do this with our relationships too, right? We have dating apps that allow you to be paired up with somebody who likes the things that you like. You don't even have to go on the first date to find out whether or not you could be compatible. But the question is, the thing I was thinking about is, what, what happens when we try to take that approach with God? What happens when we try to find a God that thinks like us, that acts like us, that likes the things that we like? What happens when we assume that God shares our view of the world? That is the question that gets answered here in this last chapter of Amos. This is a picture of what happens when we worship a God that is fashioned in our own image. Now mercifully, as we get to the very end here, we also get an alternate picture. Amos shows us a more hopeful outlook. He shows us the, the joy that follows when we come to the living God. A God who is not the God we wish him to be, but the God that he truly is. And so that's going to be our outline this morning. What happens when we make God in our own image? And then how do we approach a true and living God? And finally, what will that God do when we approach him. Now, a quick reminder as we get started here, this is Amos that's preaching. If you haven't been here, Amos is a prophet who preached around 760 BC. Uh, at this point in history, the nation of Israel has been split in half for a little over 150 years. So now the, what once was one unified country now has two halves, and the top half is called Israel. The bottom half is called Judah. This, the southern nation down here is where Amos comes from, but God has sent him up to the northern nation, and he's preaching to Israel uh, this message of, of condemnation. Israel has become wealthy over the years, but as they've gotten richer, they have denied justice to the poor. They have overlooked and oppressed the needy, and on top of all that, they have set up in their own country another temple. So instead of worshiping God in the south, in the city of Jerusalem, like he commanded us to do, it says that they have set up their own temple in this town called Bethel. And because of those things, Amos has told us all throughout this book that God is coming to judge them. And the final chapter of Amos, what we just read, it opens up again with another picture of judgment. What that judgment is going to look like. He says, I saw the Lord standing by the altar, and he said, strike the tops of the pillars so that the thresholds shake. Bring them down on the heads of all the people. Those who are left I will kill with the sword. No one will get away. No one will escape. This is a picture of God standing in that counterfeit temple. He's standing at the temple of Bethel. And now usually when you get a 
vision of God standing in the temple, you expect something good. But not here. God is not here to answer prayers. He's not here to bless people. He's here to destroy the place. He's here to condemn everyone in the entire nation. And for the original people listening to this message being preached, this would have been very shocking to hear. This was the last thing they were expecting. We've talked about this before, right? Israel, the people were doing well. They were living very comfortable lives. They had, and in those comfortable lives, they had built for themselves a comfortable God. They had a God of convenience. They worshipped regularly, but the God they worshipped was a God who never challenged their sin. He wasn't a God who judged them, but instead he was a God who ignored their sin. Maybe, maybe he even approved of their sin. I mean, you can read in scripture where God says that the people should only worship him in Jerusalem, in his temple, except in Israel they've, they've not done that. They built another temple. They built a new temple in Bethel because they were patriots. Because their allegiance to their country was more important to them than their allegiance to God. They did it. And for 150 years of worshiping at this false temple, they were fine. And so they thought, well, maybe God doesn't care about this after all. Maybe this wasn't a big deal. And you can read in scripture how God says his people need to care for the poor. How they need to protect the orphan and the widow. But instead, the wealthy people, they have gotten rich on the backs of the poor. We read in this book how they enslaved the poor, they abused the poor, they bought and sold human beings as if they were their possessions. And for 150 years, things were fine. So they thought, well, maybe, maybe God doesn't care about these things after all. But what we read here is that they were wrong. They had taken God's silence for indifference. They had taken God's patience as permissiveness. And so for Israel, this last vision, this vision we just read, it shows that the time has finally come. And now God has stepped into this temple of sin and he has come to tear it down. So let me pause here and and ask you all a question. Does God ever offend you? Does God ever upset you? Are there ever times when God gets on your nerves? Because he should. It's true. God should make you angry sometimes. God should push your buttons sometimes. Well, why am I saying that? What do I, what do I mean by that? Well, it's really simple logic, right? Have, have you ever met another person in your life that you agreed with 100% of the time? Have, have you ever gotten to know someone 
and found out that you were in complete, absolute, lockstep agreement on everything? No, of course not, right? Now, maybe you've known somebody in passing like that. Maybe you've seen some kind of famous celebrity and imagined something like that, some kind of surface level, this person can do no wrong. That's what happens a lot of times when we first start dating someone, right? We imagine that we've met this perfect person. And whenever we see them, we have this euphoric feeling. We're, we're so thrilled with this person because in our eyes, they can do no wrong. But, but you know, what you're really in love with is not that person. You're in love with your idea of that person. And then gradually, as you spend time together, you start to find out who this person really is. And they find out who you really are. And, and we learn, oh, this person has all sorts of annoying habits. <laughs> and they have opinions that are different from our opinions. We have, we have different likes and, and dislikes. And, and we find out, too, that, well, we have things that annoy them, <laughs> that they don't like about us. I remember early in my marriage, like the first or second day, Melissa let me know that for my entire life, I had been getting out of the shower the wrong way. Now, I didn't realize this, but she made it very clear to me that if this marriage were going to continue, I was going to have to change. Now, 15 years of getting out of the shower the correct way, I can say that was fine. That was no big sacrifice because the truth is, if we really love someone, we often learn that in order to love them, we'll have to change. There are some things about us that have to change. That's what it means to be in a relationship with a real person, right? So why would it be any different with a real God? Let me ask again, does God ever disagree with you? If the answer is no, then maybe you don't really know him. Again, we live in this world where we turn on Netflix and it only shows us the videos it thinks we're going to like. We used to have to listen to the radio, but now we can drive down and listen to a playlist made of the songs that we already know all the words to. And we live in a world where we can make up an imaginary God, just like Israel did. A God who always likes what we like, who approves of what we do, who thinks like we think, but who isn't really God at all. And eventually, if you live with that kind of God, what we find here is what Amos shows us, just like Israel did, is we find that we don't know God. We find that while we have lived our lives thinking that we're in his favor, the truth is we are under his wrath and his judgment. We aren't living lives in step with a real God. We are, in fact, living far from him. But when we actually come into contact with a real and living God, when we open up his word, and we read his law, and we study who he truly is. 
when we observe his character, we find out that there are many things that we do, many things that we think, many things that we believe that are not of God. There are many things about us that have to change if we want to live a life with him. So, how do we do that? How do we go from this false God made in our own image to approaching a real and living God? Our sin tells us that that we want a God who will just let us be ourselves, right? I want a God who will let me be me. In my old neighborhood where I used to live, I'd often meet people who were curious about the church. They knew I was a pastor. They were curious about God. And so we'd set up an appointment. We might go meet in a coffee shop and we'd have a conversation. And I remember often that I would encounter these people who were interested in the idea of faith. But when we started to talk about what that meant, well, I'd find out that there were all sorts of kind of caveats. Usually in that conversation, somebody would say something like, I'm, I'm thinking about going to church, but, but if I ever do attend a church, I want to make sure that that church would agree with blank. Whatever the view is. They, they say, I want to make sure the church I find agrees with my view on this. Now, I always appreciated that when somebody would be honest and share that with me because that is them saying, hey, you just need to know I've got some non-negotiables here. And when that's out on the table, you can have a healthy conversation. You can ask follow-ups. You can find out why that is. But there is, of course, a huge problem with that. Because if God is real, if God is who he says he is, if he is the creator of all life, if he is the sustainer of all things, and in fact we are his creation, then we cannot come to him with a list of conditions and expect that he's going to comply. We cannot try to shape and form God so that he will look the way we want him to. But I do think that's the essence of our state. That's our default mode as sinners in the world. We want a God who is like us. We want to make a God who, who looks, is shaped in our own image. And you know, Scripture tells us that God loves us so much that he sent his son for just that reason? Because we're always trying to remake God in our own image, Paul tells us that God sent Jesus, who is the image of the invisible God. That Jesus is the true and the correct and the unavoidable, perfect image of God, one that we can see One that we can't reshape. And in Matthew chapter 16, that Jesus, he talks about how we need to approach a living God. He says that rather than 
coming to him with a list of demands rather than approaching him with some non-negotiables and saying, I want to make sure God thinks like this first, rather than telling him, here's the things in my life that you cannot mess with, Jesus says this, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for me will find it. Our culture, it tells us all the time that the the real way to freedom, the true path to freedom is through self-expression. But the gospel tells us the opposite. Jesus says the real way to freedom is through denying yourself following Jesus. Not as you wish him to be, but as he really is. The real way to freedom is not to flow with the tide of culture and and believe just like the rest of the world around you believes. True freedom can only be found through self-denial and surrender to God. By living not the whatever kind of life you wish you could live, but living the kind of life God created you to live. In another passage, Jesus says, enter through the narrow gate. You remember this? Wide is the gate and broad is the road that leads to destruction, he says. And many enter through it. Everybody goes that way. But small is the gate. And narrow is the road that leads to life. That's the reality we see unfolding at the end of this book. Those people who have said, I'm going to follow God in everything. Well, as long as he doesn't mess with my politics. I'm going to follow God in everything as, as long as he doesn't tell me what to do with my money. I'm going to follow God as as long as I can keep fitting in with everybody else at church. I don't want to look like a radical. That way of following God seemed good to the people. The broad way. But it leads to destruction. And after we read this whole passage that describes in pretty graphic detail all the terrible destruction that's coming on this nation that called evil good and called good evil, we have this other verse. Did you hear it when I was reading it the first time? Verse 8 of our passage. It's this little glimmer of hope. God says, surely the eyes of the sovereign Lord are on the sinful kingdom. I will destroy it from the face of the earth. Yet, I will not totally destroy the descendants of Jacob. I will give a command and I will shake the people of Israel among the nations as grain is shaken in a sieve and not a pebble will reach the ground. So that illustration there is a picture of a very faithful few. He uses this idea of a sieve. It's a picture of God Shaking the people through a filter. And this filter is catching all the sin. It's catching all the idolatrous people. It's catching all the unjust people. But 
It's allowing these fine grains of sand to fall through. This righteous remnant continues. And if you've been sitting through these sermons for the last eight weeks, you realize, I hope you see, this is a, a surprising picture. We have seen some harsh words come out over the last few chapters. Some of these prophecies have been extremely graphic. It seemed like there is nothing good left in the nation of Israel. And yet, we see that even in this period of time, when seemingly everyone had fallen away and turned away from God's commands, it says there still are some who've taken the narrow path. There still were some who had chosen to show mercy and kindness to the poor. There were still some who were making the trek down to Jerusalem to worship God as he had told them to and not through an empty nationalistic faith that had become so popular with everyone else. There were those people who denied themselves and took the narrow path, who chose to love a living God instead of a figment of their imagination. And we see as the grain is, is coming through the filter that that path leads to life. So how do we approach a living God? Well, we approach a living God through denial, self-denial, through humble surrender. Because surrender is the path to freedom. And the last point here is about what happens after that. What is God going to do? For the people who choose the narrow path. So for eight and a half chapters, we have seen judgment after judgment. We have seen bleak prophecy after bleak prophecies. Doom and terror and all these things. And then in the very last lines, the ones we just read, there's this faintest glimmer. <laughs> but other than that, there's no real signs of hope. But all of a sudden... In these last four verses, Amos shows us something incredible, something unexpected. I mean, this is such a drastic turn that, that the skeptics out there say, well, this can't be true. This must have been added by somebody many years later. There's a German skeptic. He said, this can't be true because this is all roses and lavender, not blood and iron. That's how he describes this whole book, blood and iron. But you know, if you've been reading the Bible, if you know the Lord, then this ending shouldn't surprise you at all. Because this is the essence of the gospel. This is who our God is. This is why we are all sitting in here this morning. Because we worship a God who's promised to redeem his people. We worship a God who is not only a just judge that punishes the guilty, but he's also a merciful savior who loves sinners. And so in these last little verses, 
we get a picture of the same God that we have met on every page of Scripture. He is the same God from all the way back in Genesis chapter 3, where Adam and Eve, when they have sinned and they've destroyed everything, in the moment, do you remember this, when God is laying out the curse, he says, but still, hope isn't lost. Because from Eve, there's going to be this one who comes and he crushes the head of the serpent. Even in that moment of justice, our God is proclaiming mercy. And here, at the end of this book, we see that even though Israel has broken all of their promises to God, and even though they have turned from him, that they have enslaved their own people, they've stolen them, they've, they've, they've oppressed them, they've turned from the, the right worship of God into this hollow mockery. Even though they have brought the wrath of God down on themselves, it says still, they have not managed to overthrow the promises of God. They still are not able to negate that promise that one day, like he said to Eve, he will send a deliverer. And here's this picture of hope for this divided and broken nation. Verse 11, he says, In that day, I will restore David's fallen shelter. I will repair its broken walls and restore its ruins. And I will rebuild it as it used to be. So remember, Amos, he's preaching to this nation torn apart by war, divided in half for 150 years. And he says, in that day, I will restore David's throne. But that's not all. He says... So that they may possess the remnant of Edom and all the nations that bear my name. He says, it's not just Judah and Israel that's going to come under David's throne, but it's the whole world that will be a part of this plan for redemption. And if that's not enough, it won't just be the political world that is healed, but he says the entire world will be physically redeemed. Verse 13 The days are coming when the reaper will be overtaken by the plowman and the planter by the one who's treading grapes and new wine will flow from the mountains and flow from the hills. Do you see what's going on? It's saying that the the people who are planting the seeds won't have time to get to their work because there'll be so much harvesting going on. It's this picture of perpetual fruitfulness and, and flourishing. Can you remember... This has been several weeks ago, but way back in chapter 5, there was a point where God says, you guys have built mansions, but you're not going to live in them. You have these huge vineyards, but you're not going to drink their wine. But here, he contradicts all that stuff. He says, there's coming a day when they will rebuild the ruined cities and live in them. When they will plant vineyards and they will drink their wine. When they will make gardens and they will eat their fruits. This is a complete reversal. This is a picture of absolute, total flourishing. The last lines of Amos show us what Scripture calls shalom. It's a picture of the world as it is meant to be. Absolute flourishing. No conflict. No sin, no death. 
with God at the center, ruling and reigning. Can you imagine it? It's the reversal of the curse. It's not just the restoration of Israel. It's the restoration of Eden. Picture it. Think about it. What will that moment be like? That's what God wants for you. That is God's plan for you. You might be in that place this morning where you think freedom comes from living your own way. But it doesn't. That path only leads to destruction and separation from God. The God that we make in our own image is no God at all. He cannot save. But in Christ, God has already begun the process of this redemption. Do you realize that? This has already begun. If you didn't see it already, Jesus is the king who has come to sit on David's throne. And the first step in renewing this world was that he took the narrow way. He literally took up his cross and followed God at all costs, and he did that in your place. He did what you and I have failed to do. And on the cross, he bore our punishment. He bore our sin. And now, he calls you to follow him, to take up your cross, and to deny yourself. And to live a life walking with the real and living God. So after studying this whole book, I think the, the question that remains is, what does that really mean for us? What does it mean for us to become these kinds of people who are following and, and walking in step with a living God? Well, I think it means what Amos has been saying. We have to become a people of justice and mercy. We have to become a people who look for truth here in God's word instead of just following the loudest voices around us. It means we have to love our neighbors as Christ has loved us. And it means we need to listen to those prophetic voices that are crying out in this world, calling us back to the Lord. It means that we need to be, we need to risk being called radicals when we disagree <laughs> with what everybody else is doing. We need to take a stand on behalf of the poor and of the oppressed. We need to worship God as he's asked us to worship him. In true obedience, not compromising the word of God, but surrendering to it. Not changing what we find in here so it's easier to hear, but changing ourselves so that we can receive it. And of course it means that we can rest in the hope that 
we're not going to be saved by our own efforts. We're not going to be saved by our own ability to do these things, but we are saved by the finished work of Christ, by the King who is coming. And this day that we just read about, it is guaranteed if we're in him. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word, and we thank you for this beautiful picture. I'm especially impacted by it today as we're just so desperate to be free from the, the sin and the heartache of this world. As we hear about our loved ones who are sick and those who have passed away, Lord, you cannot come soon enough. We pray that you would come, Lord Jesus. And we pray that in the meantime, you would make us like you. That we would hear these words and that we would be convicted of our sin and that we would turn. Lord, we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.